This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Tena Koto Etefano, welcome to New Books Network. I'm your favorite host, Edamon, for the podcast New Books in Australia and New Zealand Studies. As always, uh, my focus today is Aotearoa, New Zealand. I hope everybody is doing well um, navigating through the pandemic. Today is a very good day because uh, today we talk to Ross Kalman who is the editor and translator of the book He Puka Puka Tataku Inga Mahi Te Rauparaha Nui, uh, a record of the life of the great Te Rauparaha, which is written by his son, Tamihana Te Rauparaha. Uh, welcome, Ross. Kia ora, Ed. Ai, tēnā koutou i ngā kaiwhakarongo. So, um, Ross, just uh, for the interest of our listeners, uh, can you tell us about your background uh, in terms of an author and a writer? Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose, yeah, books have always been a very important thing for me from childhood. Um, I always wanted to be an author when I grew up um, and, yeah, I read voraciously. Um, and, yeah, when I was growing up, actually, I didn't really know about my Māori papa, so I was... I knew that I was Māori, but I didn't actually even know what, what tribe I was, um, who my ancestors were, and so on. It wasn't until I was about 18, actually, that I um, started to um, develop a real hunger to find out about all this, this sort of thing. And so I started spending time with my grandmother, who was still alive back then. We're talking about like the early 1990s. And, um, yeah, found out I was Ngāti Toa, and descended from a, a guy that a lot of people may have heard of, especially in this country, Te Rauparaha, um, who's you know one of one of the most, I guess, famous um, Māori chiefs uh, tradition, from traditional times, um, from the you know the nineteenth century when Europeans first um, came to Aotearoa. Um, and so, yeah, that, that sort of set me off on a journey that, that sort of approximately um, 30 years later has led to, to uh, me putting out this book. So, yeah, it's been a huge journey of discovering about myself, uh, my own personal identity, as well as learning the story um, of my ancestor, Te Rauparaha. Mm. So, um, as Tamihana did several times uh, in the book, let's take the narrative uh, back to um, how did you come out finding finding the manuscript? Yeah, right. So it's interesting. So obviously, I I'd learnt that I was a descendant of Te Rauparaha, and so suddenly 
I was very interested in anything to do with Te Rauparaha. And, um, you know, at that point, there was a biography out by Patricia Burns, and I was familiar with that, that had come out in about 1980. Um, but, yeah, I was actually um, studying at the University of Canterbury, and I was just browsing the shelves of the library, as I would do sometimes. I, You know, it, it was amazing the the coming across that university library for the first time, just shelves and shelves and shelves of books, lots of like dusty, dusty tomes, <laughs> uh, you know, real stereotypical kind of dusty tomes that you imagine no one's picked up for 50 years, that sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> and um, I kind of, I kind of imagined to myself that, that the manuscript, um, which I did pick up was, was one of those that probably not many people um, had looked at. Um, but yeah, what I found was um, the University of Canterbury Library has got a complete set of the George Gray Māori manuscripts. Um, so George Gray, obviously, is a you know big figure in New Zealand history, um, was a significant collector of Māori manuscripts and other manuscripts as well, not just Māori. He also has a big you know like old Bibles and religious texts and so mm. on. Um, but yeah, the university's got a full. Um, like like bound photocopies of all his Māori manuscripts, um, including one that well I picked up that said um, yeah life of Taroparaha, Tamihana Taroparaha, and it was you know opened up I opened up that manuscript and yeah I was amazed to see page after page of beautiful handwriting in Te Reo Māori, um, a language I didn't really know at that time. I'd only just mm. started learning. So, you know, I could look at the page and I'd hardly recognise any of the words. But I just felt that it was written by a son who who actually knew knew him. So his son, Tamihana, um, was born around the early 1820s. So he, he kind of spent a lot of time with his father. And w- when his father died, Tamihana was about in his late 20s. So he had time to engage with him, develop a relationship um, as a child and also as an adult. And, um, yeah, luckily for us and luckily for his descendants in particular, who was also a real, um, into his writing, wrote lots of letters. Um, and he also, um, yeah, wrote down the story of his father's life um, some, yeah, sometime, uh, sometime in the 1860s, as, as it turned out. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So, um so very interesting. I read, um, I've read a, a few other um, biographies before. Recently, I read uh, Te Fiti Orongomai's uh, by Danny Keenan, and they are very good. But um, while reading Tamihana's work here, it was it felt so personal. It felt so personal to me. Um, so. In terms of starting writing the book, what maybe you've mentioned the reasons in the book, but what were the main reasons that motivated Tamihana to write about his father? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting, um, you know, when you delve into looking at um, the arrival of literacy amongst Māori and the, you know, along with the missionaries. So we're talking about um, around about the 1820s and 1830s. Um, as the missionaries spread through the country and introduced mm. um, reading and writing to Māori. Um, it had a massive impact on Māori um, in all aspects of life. Um, mm. Not, yeah, just um, 
the ability to read and write changed Maori culture basically fundamentally forever. Um, yeah. Because obviously up until that point, um, Maori culture was completely oral. And it's funny because people now who think that a culture is oral, they, they sort of they sort of think that it, it doesn't have any depth or it doesn't have any literature hmm. um, or, or, or subtlety. It can't, you know, how can it have all that just from being in people's heads? But, yeah. you know, if you look at what we have, um, the, the, the different, like, the tongue that we have in terms of the oral culture, it's just such a rich tradition. Um, and, yeah, so Tamihana um, came along, and as a chief's son, um, he would have started off on that journey of, of learning that oral culture and all, all the history, all the um the stories, you know, all the narratives mm. about creation and all that stuff, um, and all the um, the different ways, the tra- you know, like traditional religion in terms of using different um, karakere, or you could almost yeah. call them spells to achieve mm. what you wanted, you know, to get um, good conditions for your crops or to defeat your enemies in battle and all that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, Tamihana, as a teenager, was introduced suddenly to Christianity and, and writing and um, it sort of disrupted that whole thing. And so suddenly for him, it was almost like he embraced Christianity at, and writing and literacy with equal fervor uh, simultaneously. Um, and so by the time he was an adult, he, he had kind of, um, he'd kind of gone over to the, to the written side of the, the ledger and sort of in, and left behind the oral Mm. And um, he, when it came to the 1860s, um, at the time that he wrote this manuscript, um, the Māori Land Court was established by that point. Um, and yeah. so basically all Māori across the country had to go into court to prove their own you know, links to different pieces of land um, to, to claim ownership. Mm. And Tamihana obviously had significant interest being the son of a, a major chief. Um, he, but there were gaps in his knowledge. So I believe the manuscript was his way of um, connecting all the dots, putting the story together. He would have known a lot of that story from his father having told him, but also there would have been big blanks. So I, what I believe he did, and there's no real actual documentation. I've just had to kind of reconstruct what happened from, from looking at the manuscript closely and looking at his letters and things that we do know. And just mm-hmm. sort of piecing it together. But what I believe happened is that he spoke with a lot of the older generation who remember those events from um, from the 1820s and 1830s, which were crucial in terms of Ngāti Tours claim to lands in the southern North Island and also across into the northern South Island as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's um, um, was it um, anything personal around it as well to carry on the legacy of his father uh, at the time when Damiana was living times had completely changed um just comparing the 60s to the 40s and the 30s times had completely flipped over their head so uh, was there a motivation of preserving legacy oh absolutely i mean that would have been a big part of it and as you say that time it was a terrible time for Māori, the, mm. the early days of colonisation. Um, basically, all their lands um, were rapidly stripped from them, really. Um, and 
basically a lot of them were left with um, not enough land to eke out a subsistence from. Um, but yeah, um, Tamihana, by the 1860s, he was in his mid-40s and he probably realised he was never going to have children, which was another mm. another aspect of this documented his father's life was, was basically preserving this story because um, that, that all that traditional generation of chiefs of such as Taro Paraha mm. to Fiddle Fiddle um, to who who a whole lot of traditional leaders who grown up in the Māori society they were all they were all dying mm. and and the the Māori leadership of Tamihana's day was shifting more to the the chiefs that had grown up in two worlds and they you know, they sort of went between the worlds more often, uh, or, or more easily, I should say. Um, mm. But yeah, it was it was um, there, there was a whole mix of motivations, as as you as you say, he was um, mm. he was. I mean, one thing was preserving his father's good name, um, mm. and, and that Taropara, um was sometimes or, or quite often um, vilified in the colonial press as being kind mm. of like. In, in his lifetime while he's still alive, um, public enemy number one in the Wellington yeah. region especially, um, but also after his death, um, he was, um, Tamihana was still quick to defend his, his, his reputation when the colonial press or government uh, made a reference to Tauraupuraha in a derogatory way, which did um, happen from time to time. Yeah. So yeah, there was definitely a whole mix of things going on, and you know, that's one of the great things about history in a way is that we, we actually never really know the truth. Yeah. Um, but we can, um, you know, we can have a lot of fun just kind of making educated guesses about these things, speculations. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so um, coming to the research that you did, I was just so amazed reading the first part of the book, which is the introductions part, and the amount of detective work that you did. Um, just fascinated me. Um, for instance, the in terms of the analysis of the pictures and what was written on the pictures, that blew my mind when you, when you found out if the seven was four. And <laughs> I was amazed with that. I, I'm just, um, I won't go into the details of how you did what you did because it's all documented in the book. But what was your feeling like when you just, were there many eureka moments and you said, oh my God, nobody has found this and I know about this. Oh yeah. I tell you what, yeah, there were just so many magical moments in, in the journey like that where, um, yeah, it's like there were so many puzzles and mysteries, um, little, little ones along the way to building up that bigger picture to, to creating a good translation and to try and to give that context and, and work out what little references mean and all that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I, I think I'm the right sort of personality to, to work out these things. I think a lot of people would just give up pretty <laughs> quickly, but I just like puzzling away at little problems. Um, yeah, so, yeah, there were, there were lots of things. Um, yeah, and yeah, sometimes it was literally, like, for example, um, there's some um, transliterations, which is like English words rendered into Māori phonetically. Mm. Um, and one of them is um, te kapiterewa, which is not not a Māori word at all. And mm. I knew it was a transliteration, but I had no idea what it was. And um, I spent days puzzling over it and just sounding it out over and over in my head. Um, 
just to see if it would spur something in terms of an, just the rhythm of it would make me think of an English word. Mm. And um, yeah, it was through a whole lot of other research and, and I literally did wake up like at 2am, sit up, sit on the edge of my bed. And I thought, <laughs> I, you know, I thought, I actually know what this is. I know what it is, you know. It was crazy. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the, the, the work also around the background of the use of the were sound and the fur sound mm, mm. and the interchangeability of it and the, the way you used it to point out a time of between four years where it might have been written. Um, that was uh, that was quite amazing. In terms of your background research out of this, which sources did you go to? There were letters, of course. There's uh, there's a lot of archival work happening. So besides documentation, did you go primary resources as well? Oh, absolutely, yeah. My, I made a decision quite early on that I wasn't going to look at too much secondary material recent sources or basically people who are quite, you know, distant from that time period from, mm. from the 1860s or, or even earlier. And also the other problem with those later sources is that they've drawn on poor quality interpretations of the manuscript itself, which have been out there. And I point, point out those in the introduction as well. I made a very deliberate decision to, really focus on that generation of leaders and um, elders, um, just a bit older than Tamihana, and also mm. down to Tamihana's age as well. Their, their writings, their court um, testimony, um, just so that it was an authentic, I was drawing on, you know, authenticity was very important to me in the whole process. I was drawing on an authentic pool of, it was almost like having them as um, as my reference group was these other elders mm. of the period that mm. I would dip into to test. Because, I mean, you can't always rely on what people write down on paper. And you know, yeah. anyone who's looked at any sort of um, written material, it's funny, it's written material in our, you know, in the, in the Western culture has a, is, is on a higher plane than, um, you know, oral, anything that yeah. people say, which is kind mm -hmm. of this, anything that people say has got so many negative ways of describing it, like hearsay, mm -hmm. rumour, gossip, whereas yeah. anything that's written down always sounds so solid, factual, rational, considered and all that sort of stuff. But in fact, you know, I learned to be very suspicious um, of, of a lot of written sources. And yeah, right, even including Tummy Hunters, like just because he wrote something somewhere yeah. doesn't always mean it was the full story. You know, I always was always thinking to myself, well, what's his motivation for saying this particular thing? Hmm. And maybe is he is he obscuring things a bit here? And, and you know, so I was trying to look at other sources to, um, yeah, to sort of question what he wrote, but... I also made a decision too. If someone over here said X and Tommy Hunter says Y, I I didn't feel I didn't want to be the one to say, oh well, someone else says X, so Y is wrong. But I was yeah. sort of like I was trying to support Tommy Hunter's version, but also can you know keep that kind of questioning um, attitude at the same time. So I, mm. it was sort of a fine line to to tread. Um, yeah, but I, I wanted to avoid too too many multiple 
um, conflicting uh, references because um, I, I don't think that's super helpful. I think the main thing for me was to try and draw out Tommy Hunter's narrative mm. so that we, ha- we have that narrative now to draw on people that are interested in this history um, mm. now have a good, a good version of his, of his narrative. It is um, extensive in nature, and it is the first book that I've read, even though I'm doing a master's. It's the first piece of literature that I've read, um, nonfiction, where I've read all the notes. Um, because usually you just ignore the notes and say it doesn't really matter because they are additional. But in this book, the notes actually enhanced your understanding of what was happening around the time that Tamihana was narr- narrating. Um, so do, do you do you think um, that it is an important part of the reading, uh, that it is essential to read the notes as well? Because I found it absolutely fascinating because it, it dif- expanded um, uh, the nature of what uh, Tamihana was saying. Oh, it's really nice to get that feedback because with the notes, like I, you know, as I was researching, I was taking copious notes. I mean, the final notes that made it into publication are perhaps 20% of what, you know, my, my raw notes, I guess you call them. Mm-hmm. But what I really wanted to do was to add value to the reader. That's what I, that was my final um, criterion for, for keeping in notes was I wanted to add value. And where I had found, especially where I'd found and other primary sources are gem of information to impart that because, yeah, I, I wanted to add value to the reader's experience. The other thing too, I was really, I had a lot of say and I was grateful to the publisher that they let me basically have my way with the, the layout of the book. Mm. So a lot of, you know, a lot of notes and, and historical and other, other nonfiction texts are at the back. You have end notes yeah. and basically... Only if you're really curious about something do you actually flick back to <laughs> yeah. look because it really disrupts your reading process. Yeah. Yeah. So I really was really keen to have them on the same page. Um, and, yeah, I I, I really did, I, I, you know, really um, went over and over and over those notes, what notes to have. Um, and, and, yeah, really also to not – the other thing I think that puts you off notes is if, if they're too long. Sometimes yeah. people have very long notes. Um, <clears throat> I was just trying to keep them down to a, a succinct level. And if you really, really, really want to know about that, then, you know, t- obviously have the reference and you can go and, you know, if it's a land court or something, you can go and find that, you know, you, you can do your own reading into it. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, yeah, really pleased to get that feedback. And, um, I mean, to me, you know, Tommy Hunter wrote the text, but I, I wrote the notes. So that's kind of my, it's kind of my yeah. contribution. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, it was amazing. A, cu- a couple of things, uh, for instance, uh, the, um, uh, because there was a lot of excursions in terms of uh, war and attacks and defense. And just to get the picture of it, the notes really helped when you explain how the numbers worked. Right. So that was fantastic. The other thing I found uh, interesting um was where you kind of took into account people's memories of what different and numerous amounts of names that they've read previously. And in the notes, you will say, well, this person is related to that person. So uh, check out 13.1 to get or get a revision. Right. So I was. It was. It was one of the best things I've uh, read. So thanks for, for <laughs> that. Um, 
So in terms of translations and preserving voice, um, because when you read translations, sometimes they, as you translate from one plane and the context of one language to go to another plane, kind of loses that connecting tissue. Um, how were you able to keep that or what were your endeavors to keep that? Because he might be, he might be speaking in anger or frustration. Because, um, for example, I'll give you an example. When he talked about a, a few times, he talked about crossing the Cook's, uh, Cook Strait. Uh, and he always, he always said in an, maybe an annoyed way, or I don't know that that this is an old way of working and today people will not really uh, consider it and it might it might be considered uh, stupid or something so uh, how were you able to keep that uh, keep that uh, connecting tissue that he had yeah that that's interesting and like that's the thing the only way i think you can start to get a feel for the nuance of their sentiment is you know in their writing I mean, that, that's part of the thing about written language. It's like mm. text messages or emails and how yeah. we always misunderstand because we can't see someone writing them. Are they, are they smiling yeah. uh, or, are they, or are they scowling when they're writing it, you know? Um, <laughs> Where's the irony? Where's the, how can you, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, the only, well, the way I kind of um, over time developed a feel for his sentiment um, was just through constant, re-reading of the material and it was sometimes only on about the fifth time I might have read a passage I'd think to myself oh he's actually joking here yeah or oh this is actually um he's just making a bit of a yeah sometimes he's just being a bit of a smart ass you know yeah it's yeah. funny because you're mm. so reverent of these um mm. people from the past we think they're not really like us but they, they actually just were like us um, and so, yeah, getting that feel for, um, what, yeah, the, the sort of tone of, of the language, um, the only, the only way, well, was just through repetition becoming so familiar and you could almost start to hear his voice in your head saying, mm. saying the words and that's, um, yeah. And, and then, yeah, the next challenge was of course, representing that in the English language, um, which, and, 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 you know, you can't be too, you can't use a register that's too of, of our own times now. Yeah. You can't just throw in some some sort of lingo that's in five years' time, no one will even know what it means type, you know. It's just, yeah. um, you sort of, um, but at the same time, I did want to create a modern feeling narrative that wasn't couched in Victorian sort of terms, you know. If you look at a lot of Māori texts that have been translated into English, it's in that, Victorian language, that sort of yeah. very um, stiff, formal, archaic language. Um, and I wanted to avoid that too. Um, so, yeah, I was trying to create something that's kind of timeless. Um, yeah, but also, yeah, as, you, as you're saying, is to try and capture the tone of voice. And that, mm. that, that in a written text, obviously, that doesn't totally make sense. But as I say, it's kind of like, familiarity with the material mm. over time meant I could so, actually hear it almost in my head. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So six years, right? Um, how much does it consume you walking, eating, talking, Tamihana? Um, and when you finished it, well, was it a feeling of accomplishment or you felt that uh, you felt, for instance, I, I feel as well when I'm with a book, I recently read uh, the Virem Tamihana's uh, letters. And when I finished it, I I kind of felt, I, I, I kind of missed him. Um, but, but you actually were engrossed for six years uh, in it. Uh, how were your feelings after you had finished it? Yeah, I mean, it was all-consuming at the time. And, you know, I did it around paid work. So I was spending evenings, um, you know, working away at it, much to mm. my, you know, wife's kind of, <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of yeah. what's the word, just over time she got a list dismay 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 less less tolerant less tolerant less tolerant like just publish it already type of thing um yeah so it was a labor of love and Mm. i wasn't even doing it to make a book or to do anything in particular to start with to start with it was just out of pure interest it was just like oh you know i really want to read this manuscript i really want to understand it and it just developed into a translation from there um, yeah, no, it was all consuming, but yeah, it has left a bit of a gap. So, um, probably in the last year of those six years you were talking about, the last year was all pretty much full time, and I was able to mm. get some funding to help make it a full time project. Um, and the, and and also having a publisher, you know, for many years I sort of thought, oh, I might just have to self publish this because it seemed like such a labour of love. Yeah, it was hard to imagine a publisher coming on board and really being sympathetic with what I was trying to do and to mm. to honour the material and so on. And I was really fortunate to to meet Sam Sam Alworthy from um, Auckland University Press, and, mm. and you know I'm just absolutely just you know they did such a wonderful job with the production and so on. Like when you know when I first held the book in my hands in in, in the publisher's office, it was a very emotional moment. It was yeah, it was like. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to explain in words, but I was yeah. basically very moved by it. Um, and yeah, his that 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 was um, just over a year ago. Uh, oh no, I'm just thinking. Gee, COVID makes us have a different sense of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that just over a year ago, 2021? I think it was. No, I think it was about mm. a year ago when mm. the book actually came out. Um, but yeah, it's left a bit of a gap. I, I, I see yeah. it's left a bit of a gap, definitely. And um, I'm, I am keen to 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 find something to replace that. But kind of nothing mm. has quite measured up yeah. so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's get into what uh, was written. This the story of Tero Paraha within uh, within the narrative. Um, the Tamihana has outlined the different movements of uh, Nati Toa um, around. And 
it amazed me when you hear of my, I've, I've read of the, I've read of the uh, migration before and you always feel that, all right, they packed the bags and then they, they left and then they were there. And while reading it, I realized that this migration was, you go, you stop, you go back, you go again. And um, it was a, a laborious uh, work uh, by Natitoa and, and, and Teropara. So what actually um, led to uh, Teroparaha to embark on such a great journey? Yeah, it, it was um, obviously a very um, turbulent time. Mm. We're talking about the late 1810s and, mm. um, you know, some iwi had started acquiring muskets in large numbers and using them to settle scores and, um, you know, tradi- in traditional warfare, casualties were never never so bad um, mm. with traditional weapons and just hand-to-hand fighting. But with muskets, it was certainly the case that um, warfare became much more bloody. Um, mm. And it may not have just been about muskets. It may have been mm. other pressures such as um, increasing population, especially in the north of the North Island where you've got the prime areas for growing kumara, mm. um, you know, obviously the warmer, the warmer parts of the country. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a time when um, Ngāti Tōa were, were constantly being harassed by, by Wakato, by Ngāti Maniapoto, mm. um, and other, they're all actually related, all Tainui tribes, all related. Yeah. Um, so certainly um, there was pressure on Ngāti Tōa in their Kafia homeland. Hmm. And, um, yeah, so it's interesting. Like, it was, um, it was quite an incredible time of long-distance kind of like war parties started hmm. happening, and it it was on one of these. Taropiraha went on, along with other leaders of Ngāti Tōa, as well as um, Ngāpuhi as well, Tamasi yeah. Wakanini, who was his great friend. They went all the way down to the Wairarapa, from Kafia following the coast. So it would have taken yeah. um, the whole the whole trip was probably about a 12-month trip. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's quite it's sort of a little bit hard now to know exactly what was the motivation for these trips. I mean, mm. the, what, was it just for the sport of going? And because yeah. there was um, a lot of battle battles um, with the local peoples of, of the different mm. regions they visited. some in, in some cases, they would have had um, pre-existing alliances, so it wasn't always, things didn't always end in battle, or us, a peace could be negotiated. Um, but yeah, so, so Te Rauparaha made his way down to that, the Wellington region. Mm. Um, and um, He seemed uh, quite impressed with the... Uh, According to Tamihana, uh, Teropara seemed quite impressed with uh, uh, Tamati uh, Wakanene's um, suggestion, and it seemed to me, to my reading, that the the opportunity to engage with the international traders that were coming in, Pakeha coming in, that was one of the main, uh, one of the reasons, uh, might be one of the reasons there as well, because uh, that that leads to my next question that. We have uh, this general narrative in society right now that the uh, the 
the view of Maori in the in the ni- in the in the in the in the 19th century uh, would have all been negative towards uh, Pakeha coming in, but it was a very professional point of view towards Pakeha. Um, is that a valid assessment? Well, yeah, it was quite an entrepreneurial outlook that they had, basically, what were the opportunities, um, and Mm. also it required a lot of vision as well to, 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 you know, look at, look at a Māori society, which you could say was a Stone Age or whatever Mm. society, but Mm. have the vision to realise that the, the European ships coming in increasing numbers was going to mean fundamental changes, and that basically... You know, I, were you going to sort of ignore that, or just sort of mm. jump on board and um, yeah. basically make the most of those new technologies at hand? And obviously, mm. the most well known is, is the musket, mm. but you know there was also other technologies such as iron tools um, for agriculture, and transportation. I mean, it was it, it really helped with transportation as well. Some of the uh, some of the uh, some of the traveling that uh, Teropara did by just talking to the captain of the ship. Oh, absolutely! That's right. Mm. You could get from A to B much quicker, and mm. um, the um, you know the the whaling um, the, the the whaling and sealing vessels, uh, the mm. smaller ships as well. They quickly replaced Walker as the as mm. the vessel of choice for making the longer um, the longer journey. And obviously, at that stage, water was still your the best way of getting around rather than mm. going overland. Yeah. So no, it's it's quite amazing to think of the vision that that leaders like Tadopiraha had um, to to realise the world was changing, um, mm-hmm. and to basically that's what led um, led Ngati Tor to relocating to to the Kapiti region was that opportunity of interacting with um, European shipping and acquiring that technology. Um, mm-hmm. It just seemed like it was going to offer them more of a future. Than staying back at Kafia, where they were going to have to be often dealing with these war parties. Um, so yeah, mm. it seemed like it was. It's, it's funny, isn't it? A lot of people, you know, these days move countries, um, yeah. looking for basically better opportunities, and it's a very similar proposition, really. Yeah, yeah. It's um, the the time that has been mentioned by Tamiana across the story. Um, uh, with my reading, it it felt like the temperament of the Roparaha was changing through time. So as it came to Haufenua um, uh, time, um, he seemed to be not really happy with what was going on. He 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 lent his mana and he worked uh, uh, with them, but he seemed to be providing a lot of choices to everyone that, okay, you want to do it, so you do it this way, but I will do it this way. Um, it's um and also it was more of a restrained uh when he when he when he said to them that you know the 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 taraniki tribes are taking uh plundering the f- food uh, don't engage let them do it uh un- until physical things happen and and obviously physical things happen and war, war broke out um d- did you feel that um it kind of um, lent to his prowess as a military person, plus also a great leader for his own people. Yeah, I mean, it, 
he obviously built a kind of like a almost like an empire, an alliance between the Taranaki Iwi, Ngāti Raukawa, Ngāti Toa. Mm. Um, quite a rare thing in traditional Māori society, actually, to have mm. a multi-iwi identity or entity um, that by working together they were able to, um, you know, overcome a whole lot of mm. other, um, well, basically, yeah, build a, a like a, almost like an empire um, mm. across Raukawa Moana, Cook Strait. Um, but, you know, when you read the manuscript, you realise what a fragile entity it was because, you know, the nature of Māori society was that not just at an iwi level, more of a hapu or sub-tribe mm. level, um, each sub-tribe and, and the leaders of that sub-tribe have their own autonomy, yeah. um, you, which you can't take away from them. So basically you could never... Mm. Taropaha was never like a king or an emperor. Yeah. You couldn't just decree something and people would do it. There was always negotiation, discussion. And as you say, you know, he he was, by the time of Haofenua, which which was a very um, bloody, messy, kind of like civil war situation mm. in, the, in the, around about 1834, by that time, you know, he was, he was just giving advice to other people mm. rather than telling them what to do. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it's kind of like gives you a real insight in how Māori society operated at that point. Mm. And, you know, a lot of later observers have come along and go off, oh, you know, if Māori had all banded together, they could have kept Parker out of the country or, you know, things like, yeah. same things like that. But really that's very unlikely in the Māori sense and that, you know, groups would come together for short, t- for short and short term, um, situations, mm. but uh, unlikely, or the nature of the society, the very nature of society meant they wouldn't um, do that for over a long period of time. Yeah. Mm. In terms of uh, the mention of the haka, uh, kamate, um, it, I mean, people living nowadays would say that, oh, it should cr- uh, maybe make the one of the bigger parts of the uh, of his narrative. But the time at uh, to my understanding, the time at that time was different. I mean, there was no all, all blacks at that time. So, um, uh, and some of the other events are mentioned less as well, like the 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 Wairau, uh, part with Rangi uh, Hayata. And uh, so, why why do you think these uh, later events were mentioned with? lesser detail as compared to the the previous uh, events before the 30s yeah i mean it's um yeah it's interesting you mentioned the haka um obviously today with you know all blacks being a global phenomenon mm. everyone knows about kamati and, and that's probably the thing that taroparaha is most famous for today mm. um quite possibly it wasn't actually a big deal in his own lifetime um yeah. And that Tamihana, if it was a big deal, Tamihana would certainly have focused on it. Mm. Um, I think it's um, grown in momentum um, and, and probably largely through the endeavours of Ngāti Tūwhari Tōa, yeah. the iwi who's kind of like the hosted to Rupuraha when he mm. uh, composed that haka. Mm. You know, it's interesting that in this in Tamihana's manuscript, there's a number of um, haka and uh, traditional yeah. waiata mentioned but not, not Kamate. Um, yeah, so um, he, as you mentioned, he does focus on the events, I guess, pre about 1840. 
Um, mm. And there isn't that much about kind of um, yeah interactions with say Governor Gray in the 1840s, mm. all that sort of stuff. Um, I, 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 I believe that it was really probably, you know, and you mentioned how Whenua, the, the sort of civil war kind of um, mm. situation, it was really up until that whole Whenua that um, his, I suppose, Tommy Hunter considered his greatest deeds were achieved. Oh yeah. Um, by by migrating and then by bringing mm. that alliance of three iwi together, and then by creating a kind of like a an empire, that was really the pinnacle of, of his achievement. Yeah. I think from Hauwhenua onwards, um, it became a little bit more fragmented, and then obviously mm. you had um, the arrival of um, you know the New Zealand Company. Mm. And 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 so on and 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 Taraparaha was obviously still considered to be the leading chief in in the Rokawa Moana Cook Strait region in 1840. Mm. Um, but yeah, by that time, you know, he 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 was perhaps 70 years old by that point, so he did, he did a very long life. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, it's only natural people slow down a bit, you know, as they <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's understandable and i mean his his mana was maintained through time even by that time as well because george gray was worried mm-hmm. um and he had to illegally um kidnap him and move yeah, him around yeah. in, a, in a ship all around so mm. there the, there was there were there were elements of understanding in the New Zealand government at that time that, uh, all right, if we want to get our ways forward, I mean, this person needs to be shut out. Um, just talking about that, wh- I couldn't understand it. I couldn't uh, decipher it from the book. Wh- why did the relationship of Tamihana develop in a positive way towards uh um, uh, George Gray uh, later in life. I know it's a great mystery, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, Tommy Hanna, he had this thing for European authority figures. He he kind of really looked up to them, basically. And the first one he really came in contact with was Octavius Hadfield, Bishop Hadfield. Mm. Yeah. Then we have um, the first. Um, Bishop of New Zealand, uh, George Selwyn, who, yeah, I mean, and then not long after that, Tamihana met George Gray. And all these figures, Tamihana kind of idolises. Um, he's mm. he's like a real, I don't know what the word is, like a West, Western file. you know. He's a real, mm. one of those people that just loved everything to do with the West. Um, mm. English culture thought it was the pinnacle of, of culture, so I suppose in a way he kind of believed the hype of of those early um, early colonial, you know, mm. figures. He yeah. believed the hype that basically the English culture was superior, and that you know Maori should just forget about their old ways and adopt this new new culture. So yeah, George Gray was certainly almost like a godlike figure. Well, mm. you know, Maori thought of their leaders. And, and leaders like George Gray is almost being pretty close to divinity, basically. Mm. Um, so he was almost a godlike figure. And so even even though he actually abducted his father <laughs> illegally mm. without any constitutional basis, yeah. um, Hanna obviously didn't really hold it against him. 
Mm. Um, and 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 I think Taraparaha helped probably helped Tami Hana's acceptance of the of it too because Taraparaha could kind of see that maybe it would well it would almost certainly avoid bloodshed. Him, him being kidnapped meant that um, it, it did avoid um, Ngāti Tōa and other iwi rising in greater numbers against um, against the government and what they were doing um, yeah. at that time, so that you had just Tarangi Haita and some other yeah. um, elements, smaller, a smaller element who were more active uh, in active resistance. Um, and so, relatively speaking, in terms of... Um, you know, in the 1840s, in terms of the Wellington region, there wasn't much loss of life mm. and, and so on and, and warfare. Yes, so that's very interesting. And he had a he, he had a very different life track as as compared to his father. Um, it's mentioned in the book as well that he, he didn't care about the danger that that might exist going to the South Island to preach uh, um, uh, Christianity, and he just went there. Uh, so he, he did have a different idea of life for himself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He, as I said, he, he he loved all things English, and he even self-funded a trip to England in the early eighteen fifties yeah. at considerable expense to himself. Um, just what he just wanted to soak it all up, mm. um, learn as much as he could about. Western technologies. Um, yeah, he wanted to see where all this, um, all this material and technological know-how, where it all came from. He wanted to go mm. to, the, to the source, um, and he he pretty much yeah remained for the rest of his life very pro uh, pro government and um, was mm. often a a mediator in disputes, um, kept the peace between Maori and Pakeha. And between Māori mm. and Māori as well, um, yeah, very interesting figure in his own right. But yeah, very operated in, in a totally different world um, to yeah. his father. Yeah. Well, I have um, before we close up, I have an interesting thing to talk to you about. Uh, you, one in one of the pictures you you mention, it's a bit of a mysterious thing. It's Samihana and his wife. Let me open it, and um, it actually says. Um, the caption says that Tamihana te rauparaha, rawako ruta te rauparaha, kuamate i to horo maketu. Tamihana te rauparaha and ruta te rauparaha died at te horo maketu. <laughs> and um, I've I found it. I mean, you you dealt with it in the in the book as well. With with, with the modern contest in mind, I I found it very romantic in the sense that um i mean that was their home that was their area and he just wrote that i mean she's gone so you know we both are gone i I don't know i i just wanted to get your point of view on that because i looked at it from a very romantic point of view uh i didn't feel like it (laughs) it was a mistake but it it seems very deliberate. There's uh, the writing doesn't seem to be rubbed on, or nothing has happened to it. Uh, what, what was your point of view around it? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, that's that's a funny one. That's just one of those things, and it's it's almost like, um, yeah, it almost like it would be a bit sad if I was able to solve all the mysteries. Like, yeah, there's something, yeah, it, yeah there's something nice about just. The mystery, knowing, yeah, the mystery, knowing mm. that some things are going to confound us, and we'll never, we'll never really know. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, 
yeah, that 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 one. It's just I I, I don't yeah. I as I, as I say in the book, I don't quite know what Tommy Hunter was was talking about. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's a funny thing, you know. I still kind of hold out some hope that one day perhaps someone will tap me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, you know that in the book? I know what that's about." You know. Oh yeah. Someone might tap me on the shoulder. I might find out. Uh, but but yeah, in a way, I kind of. Yeah, I kind of like these mysteries too. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I mean, we uh, come close to our times. I mean, I can talk. I've made so many notes, and I really wanted to t- go into a lot of detail. But then we'll we'll reveal all the secrets. People need to buy the book, right? <laughs> so, um, um, I really found it fascinating, and it was an excellent um, piece of uh, um, editing translation and the introduction part and the notes all together uh, created a, a great picture of Teropara. Actually, it's, it's I, in the recent games in, when All Blacks played um, Wales and I saw the haka and I felt so much joy. I was like, I mean, I know almost everything that is out there about uh, the person who wrote it through his son's words, and it kind of becomes a bit more important and meaningful um, as as a representation of New Zealand abroad. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's great. Well, maybe I mean he was a prof- prolific letter writer. Maybe that's another book. You never know. Yeah. You know, I have thought about that. I, I think <laughs> his letters would make a nice book too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's uh, What's coming up? Um, we always do that as a just customary three and a thing in, in in the new books network. So what's what's next uh, in terms of writing or projects uh, coming up? Yeah, so actually, recently I've had a, another book come out. Um, it's called He Atua He Tangata, the World of Māori Mythology. So it's like a oh, you're I saw that you're a part of it. Yeah, so I'm, oh, I'm yeah. again. I'm like the editor. Um, mm-hmm. it, and it's a collection, you know, if you're interest, interested in the Māori worldview, um, it's a really good introduction to, um, Māori thought in terms of from creation through the stories of, you know, demigods like Māori and Tāwhaki mm. through to more, um, recent narratives. Um, but yeah, so I've, I had that one come out not too long ago and I've got another, um, Māori picture dictionary again, I'm just like a mm. co-author, um, that, that's also coming up. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like a really meaty book project like this one, um, I'm, I'm a little, I'm sort of in between and I'm kind of mm. just mulling things over. I, um, just so that, you know, as you can appreciate, if you to spend six years on something, it has to be the right thing. It can't just be anything, you know? Yeah. You need to bring your brain down to a, a, a base level to get it started again. Yeah, that's um, quite understandable. But yeah, like what you're saying, that your suggestion about the letters is actually something mm. I have thought about. It would it mm. would be a, a very interesting insight to those times. And I feel too that that point of view of someone who was more pro-government, um, it's like a less sexy kind of mm. point of view. You know, we a lot of books have been put out about people that resisted um, colonisation. Yeah. Um, I think this point of view is equally interesting in its own way, and and yeah, it, it, as you as you suggest, it could actually make a really a really nice book mm. too. Yeah, I mean, it can be. It I mean, I found his uh, view as as in quite nuanced because uh, from other sources that I've been reading, he was 
against some of the things that the government were doing a lot of the times. He was not really happy with the land courts and how things were going. So, it, I mean, it can be a very nuanced uh, point of view coming out of the letters as well. Um, but uh, thanks, Ross, uh, for taking time on a wonderful um, day uh, today to talk to us. It was uh, it, it was a fantastic chat and hopefully, um, not hopefully, most definitely the, the listeners would find it really enjoyable. Thanks, thanks for joining. Thanks, Ed. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. So to... To end this uh, for everyone, I'll read uh, one of the quotes, uh, which is at the back of the book, um, by Tamihana. Um, it is, Kaore kau he kaumatua he rite mo te rau paraha te mohio ki te whaiwhai me te toa hoki me te tino tangata ki te atawhae tangata. Uh, there has never been a man equal to Teroparaha in terms of knowledge of warfare and prowess in battle and in being so dedicated to looking after people. Um, Noreda, tēnā koto katoa. Bye, everyone.